psychologists would tell us that if we strip back all the layers of human experience, so you look at someone's behaviour and you look deeper and you see thoughts, and you look even deeper and you see someone's feelings, but then you look even deeper than that, you'll find someone's motivations, someone's uh, passions, but underlying all of this is a deep longing for something or another. It's kind of like a life pulse, a force that drives every aspect of our lives, including our motivations and our feelings and working its way back up through our lives into our thoughts and our actions. So what is it, to ask a different question, what is it that you long for? There are many different things that people long for, but most of them fit into kind of similar categories. So one of these is human love and acceptance. And of course this would lead to a lifestyle focusing on aiming to please people, whether it's your parents, your boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, your spouse, people at work, classmates. Another longing that some people have is for thrills in their life, which of course leads to all sorts of adventurous and wild living, drinking, drugs, casual sex, travel, thrill-seeking, all these kind of things. And this is a really common one nowadays. Uh, at my place of work, people really look forward to the weekend uh, because that's the time where they can, you know, have their drinks and, and, and sort of have, a, have their thrill for the weekend. And it even goes to the point where they describe every week, every day of the week in regards to the end of the week. So Thursday becomes Friday Eve. Um, Wednesday is halfway day. And uh, Monday and Tuesday, no one really wants to talk because um, everyone's just too depressed. All because for them, the longing is for the next thrill. And of course, that's not going to come at work for them. Another longing could be for luxury and comfort, which leads to materialism, overeating, love of money and greed, or laziness. And there are others. But the point is that everyone has these longings and these longings drive everything in our lives. In our story today we see two people who longed for very different things. So let's have a closer look. So we see Jesus returning to the town of Bethany which is the scene of an amazing miracle because it was in Bethany only a few days earlier that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And when a guy who was dead, and not just dead, but four days dead and beginning to decompose, comes back to life, people start to notice. And so the town is, is abuzz with all the excitement of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, put on a dinner for Jesus to honour him and thank him for what he's done. So we have this dinner party with Jesus as the guest of honour and some other guests including a guy who used to be dead. And then Mary does something really strange. We're told that she takes a pint, it's about half a litre, of very expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. Now there are at least four things that are quite strange about what Mary did. The first one is the volume of the perfume used. Now some of you ladies uh, might use perfume, um, some of you men might as well, I'm not going to judge you on that. Um, how much would you put on in a typical perfume application? Um, 
maybe one or two sprays, uh, three if you're feeling lucky. Um, any more than that, you're probably a little bit too fragrant, I would say. Um, <laughs> and that would amount to probably less than a milliliter of perfume. So out of your, what, 50 or 100 ml perfume bottle, you get about two or 300 days worth of perfume goodness. So now imagine taking five or ten of your perfume bottles and using them all at once, just straight on. You've got the stuff running down your head, your top's just completely soaked from it, and no one really wants to come within ten metres of you because you smell so strongly. I think it's fair to say that it's not the usual method of perfume application, and that goes for today as well as back in Jesus' day. The second thing that's very strange about this whole scene is that she anoints his feet. Almost always in the scriptures it would be the head that would be anointed. A person's head is, is their place of honour. So when a king would be anointed, they would anoint his head. And in some cases the king would be anointed instead of wearing a crown. So it's that kind of, that kind of feeling that you anoint someone's head. Anointing is also used in hospitality. But again, it would be the same thing. It would be anointing someone's head so that they, they look good. There's oil, there's a bit of shine on there. But instead, Mary chooses to anoint Jesus' feet. In choosing to do that, she is effectively saying, even the feet of Jesus, which, by contrast to the head, are the most dishonourable part of the body. They're dirty, they're used to walk through all sorts of muck, this is the job of the servant to clean the feet, if anything. But in choosing to do so, Mary is saying that even the feet of Jesus, even the most dishonourable, the most dirty part of Jesus, is more worthy than any part of me. So for her, this is total unreserved humility. She's taking the lowest possible position next to Jesus. But as well as anointing his feet instead of his head, she wiped the excess perfume off with her hair. So this is the third strange thing in this account. So commentators are kind of divided as to whether this gives a, a kind of erotic air to the whole situation. Um, for a woman to let down her hair in public like that, especially uh, with men around, it would be quite frowned upon and it would be seen as a mark of a, of a loose woman in that culture. But one thing's for certain, whether it was erotic or not, is that it was deeply intimate. Mary was expressing her love and her devotion to Jesus in the way that she knew. This is her way of expressing her love and her closeness to Jesus. The fourth remarkable thing about this story is, of course, the cost of the perfume. This wasn't just any perfume. This was nard or pure nard, as the text would say. This comes from the spikenard plant, which is found in the Himalayas between altitudes of 3,000 and 5,000 metres, so only from certain areas. And then the roots of the plant are crushed and distilled, yielding an oil. And of course, that oil would then have to be transported thousands of kilometres to, to Israel, to the place where the story takes place, and there it would be used as sometimes as an incense, sometimes as medicine and, of course, as a perfume or an anointing. And the net result, of course, is this is a horrendously expensive oil. 
the text tells us that it costs a, worth, a year's wages, 300 denarii. So one denarii was about a day's wages for a labourer. So 80 or 100 dollars. So 300 denarii, we're looking at something like 25 or 30 thousand dollars in today's terms. So that's quite a lot of money. And a quick Google search will show you that even nowadays there aren't that many perfumes that are worth more than this was back in the day. So there are four things that are very strange, at least four things that are very strange about this story. Perhaps just imagine the scene for a moment. To start with it might have looked like a, a relatively orthodox anointing. Um, they see Mary taking the bottle of perfume of nard and going to Jesus so they probably think, oh yeah, she's just going to pour just a little bit out and anoint his head, you know, as people mostly do. But then imagine the scene in the room as they see her pouring out the entire bottle onto his feet and then wiping it with her hair. And this stuff's just all running all over the floor, smells going all through the house. It seems like an incredible waste. Those in the room were undoubtedly very uncomfortable at the time. People are looking at each other thinking, you know, is this woman mad? Is she, has she lost the plot? And no one's really sure whether they should say anything. And I think that Judas perhaps wasn't the only one who had questions in his head. Although, of course, he was the one who voiced them. So we need to ask ourselves, why did Mary do this? Because there's something here that we need to learn from Mary. Why was it better, not better to give the money to the poor, as Judas suggests? After all, helping the poor is something Jesus commands us to do. The book of Acts records how people sold property and all sorts of other things so that they could give their possessions to those in need. And besides, Mary could have shown her devotion in a whole range of other ways, ways that would have been perfectly acceptable to Christ and to the people around her. So why did she do this? I've been thinking about this quite a bit and I can't really think of many things to compare it to. I mean, a man will buy a very expensive ring for the woman of his dreams. It might cost him up to $5,000 in some cases or if it's a really rich man it might be might be a lot more than that. But a ring, it lasts forever, right? You can always display a ring. It's like, yeah, I've got a ring. Um, you know, you can insure them. They last forever. Unlike this perfume. I came across another example which perhaps comes a little bit closer, but it's still not quite there. Um, and that is something some of you might have seen in the news last month. Um, a New Zealand businessman uh, in Melbourne ordered the world's most expensive cocktail. So he paid 15,360 New Zealand dollars. The cocktail took a team of chefs two days to prepare and the cocktail had two shots of cognac made in 1858. So he went into the bar, he sat down on his own with the press all watching him and taking photos. He took two or three sips of this cocktail, put it back down again, signed the cheque and walked out. 
So he drank about you know, 1 or 2% of this cocktail that he'd paid $15,000 for. And the barman, I think, enjoyed the rest of that. But even this crazy waste and strange story doesn't quite match what Mary did. After all, this man, this New Zealand businessman, probably had a lot of money. This was just chump change to him. Um, and so, whereas Mary, on the other hand, you know, would have been relatively poor, and this would have been all that she had. So, where does this leave us? Why, what is Mary's motivation here? Why did she do this? And all I could come up with was this, was that nothing else mattered to her apart from Jesus. This isn't the outcome of a, a rational, logical, calculated kind of process. This is the outcome of a heart that has nothing else except love for Jesus. This is sheer exuberance. It's total extravagance. Nothing's been seen like it since. And it's also deep intimacy. She can't help but give Jesus the best possible gift, such as her devotion to him. In other words, Mary had a longing for Jesus. She'd been looking forward to this time with him. There's been nothing else on her mind apart from this time with Jesus and the anticipation of being with him. A mind of thankfulness, gratitude, of course for raising her brother from the dead, but also because it's a heart that recognises that Jesus is her Lord. But there's another aspect to Mary's actions that we shouldn't overlook, and that is something that Jesus himself hints at. Look at verse 8 where Jesus says, It was intended that she save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now immediately we have a question. If she was meant to save the perfume for the day of the burial, then why is she using it now? Jesus is still alive and well. He's hardly dead. Um, Did she get ahead of herself? Um, Did she lose sight of what she was saving it for? Did she even know what she was saving it for? The answer here has to do with, with Lent, really, with the proximity of the cross. You see, although Jesus was alive and well at this stage, the storm clouds were gathering, so to speak. After, la- after raising Lazarus from the dead, some people believed, but others went to the Pharisees who then started to plot to kill Jesus. And so from this point onwards, his crucifixion is always looming. His road to the cross, in effect, begins here. And the following chapters of John all point towards the cross. They all lead up to that point in history. And Jesus knows that that's what's coming. He's focused on his mission. And so Mary, without, perhaps without even knowing it herself, is announcing the nearness of Jesus' death. In effect, she is anointing him for his impending death and his burial. And of course, Jesus welcomes and celebrates her because of that. So Mary, having longed for this time with Jesus, is actually looking forward further to his death and his burial. Giving the money to the poor, most of the time that would have been a really good option. But Jesus reveals that what Mary did was infinitely more valuable. It enabled her to express her devotion and her love to Jesus and it announced to everyone in the room Jesus' impending death on the cross. 
So what about Judas then? Well, John reveals to us something that most people in the room didn't know. And that is that behind his facade of wanting money to go to the poor, he was in fact a a thief and was greedy. In other words, above all else, Judas longed for money. All he can think about is when he can dip his hand into that money bag to be able to take for himself what he wants. And so Judas stands in stark contrast with Mary. Mary was devoted to Jesus. Judas was devoted to money. Mary understood Jesus. Judas couldn't see the wood for the trees. Mary was warm and loving, whereas Judas was cold and critical. Now this is the fifth Sunday of Lent. Hopefully I got that right. Um, And Lent really is a time where we should be reflecting and asking ourselves what are our longings? Do we, like Mary, have a longing for Jesus? Do we look forward to time with him each day? Do we love worshipping him in church? Do we think about him, talk about him, and serve him like Mary did? Are we looking forward to Easter as a time where we can celebrate and remember his death and resurrection? Or are you more like Judas with other longings in our lives? You know, we often look at Judas and we shake our heads. We think, how can someone sink so low that he would commit the most grave, the most well-known, worst possible sin? He betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And it was a terrible sin. But we forget that for Judas, it was only one aspect of his life that wasn't surrendered. That, of course, of money and greed. And being unrepentant in just that one area, everything for him went downhill until eventually he did the unthinkable. You know, Jesus and John were the only ones who actually knew before Judas betrayed, you know, that he was of dubious character. To everyone else in the room and to pretty much everyone else that he encountered, he looked, he came across as a perfectly normal disciple who would have been seen as a good person. And did you know that this passage in John is the only place that Judas is revealed to be of bad character apart from his connection with the betrayal of Christ? And I think there's a warning here for all of us and that is that if we surrender our whole life to Jesus except for one, just one little area, if we say to Jesus, you can have free reign over all of my life except for this one area here, and this one thing let me do as I want, then we're exactly in the same boat as Judas. Like Judas, it could be finances that we don't want to yield to Jesus. Or it could be something else. It could be relationship. It could be materialism. It could be love of food. It could be self-image. It could be love of human acceptance could be your sexual orientation or your secret indulgence that no one knows about or your unforgiveness of that person. You see, it's very easy to tell ourselves that if everything else is surrendered to Christ, then it doesn't matter much if we have one little bit that isn't. But in the end, of course, it is a slippery slope. 
and like Judas, that one area of unrepentant sin will lead us to betray Christ in the end. There was a young woman that um, a few of us were walking with um, a few years back and she came to believe after hearing the gospel and all seemed well and good until a few months down the track and she started dating this guy. And it soon became clear that really this was what she was longing for all along. She knew in her mind the importance of keeping Jesus first in her life. And she told us that. But reality painted the completely opposite picture as she slowly but surely left church, left fellowship, stopped reading her Bible, and she pursued her boyfriend as the most important thing in her life. And it's a sad story because there was so much enthusiasm and true understanding of the gospel and there was surrender in most areas of her life. But it only took one worldly distraction, only one area that she stubbornly held on to, which strangled the life of this new believer. I still pray sometimes and and I hope that she will come back and I believe that um, God is good and that um, he has the power to make that happen. But unless, unless she sees Christ as number one and repents of this area in her life, I don't believe it's going to happen. So let us give all of our lives to Jesus, no matter how humbling it may be to confess our sins to God and to each other, so that there's not one little area remaining that he is not in full lordship over. So we've seen that Mary and Judas are polar opposites when it comes to their longings and their desires, which reveal themselves through their actions and what they say. But how do we, want to, how do we cultivate such a longing and such a devotion for Jesus? How can we be more like Mary in this regard? Is there something that we can latch on to as we find ourselves in this season of Lent. I want to give you just one way, and I take this from our story this afternoon, and that is that love must come before logic. How many of you are very logical people? Um, I'm putting my hand up. Yep. Um, all of you guys, um, it's quite a common trait there, um, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, And I'm not saying that being logical is a bad thing. I believe it is a God-given character. And I believe that God wants us to use our minds and our intellect. But to be guided by logic without love is a tragic mistake that we need to avoid. I mean, look at Judas. If nothing else, his logic is faultless. He knows the command in Deuteronomy 15.11. It says to be open-handed to the poor and needy who will always be among you. And he knows that a lot of money could be salvaged from this perfume. And so putting the two together, it seems perfectly logical that we sell the perfume and give the money to the poor. But because of his lack of love, he fails to see the big picture. He fails to see that what Mary did with the perfume was actually far greater than anything that could have been conceived of by pure logic. And the reason is that logic and powers of reason, whilst they are helpful and have their place, they're limited. It's not the full picture. 
And to be really practical here, I believe there are a lot of ways, a lot of times in our lives where we're confronted with a choice to put either love or logic first. So let me give you a few examples. Logic says, I'm too busy to have my quiet time today. I'll have more time next week and spend time with Jesus then. Whereas love says, I need to have time at the feet of Jesus every day. Logic says, I'm poor, I've got no money to give. But when I'm older and I'm earning more money, then I'll, I'll give more. Whereas love says, I need to be totally, constantly devoted to God with my finances. Logic says, I can go and sin in this way and repent later and then God will forgive me. Love says, I don't want to do anything at all that would hurt God. Logic says, logic says, God doesn't want me back. I'm such a sinner. Love says, I need to be with God, however messed up I am. Logic says, I can't give great gifts to my spouse and my children because we have mortgages and debts to pay off. Love says, I want to bless my spouse and my family in every way I can. Logic says, Easter is a good opportunity to take some time off and get loads of stuff done around the house. Love says, I need to take some time over Easter to reflect on Christ and his work on the cross. Logic says, my friends are all opposed to the gospel, so there's no point in talking to them about it. Love says, I don't want anyone to perish, so I'm going to do all I can. Do you know if Jesus treated us as logic would suggest, purely as logic would suggest, then there would be no hope for us. But the fact is that he loved us. So where logic says we need to be punished for our sins, God's love for us meant that he provided his son so that we could be saved. And as First John says, we love because he first loved us. So as we go into the last two weeks of Lent, let us yeah, be reflective, be questioning ourselves and, and looking at what those longings are in our heart. And let us seek to love. Not totally disregarding logic, but put love first, especially at this time of Lent. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the heart of the gospel is that you loved us and you saved us. And Lord, we are immensely thankful for that. And Lord, the correct response to having received your love and your grace is to ourselves be loving and, sacri and sacrifice what we have for you, Lord. Lord, forgive us if we have rationalised our sin, if we've used logic as a tool against you, if we have used logic over love to get our way or to cover over our lies and our sin. And Lord, help us to be more like Mary. Help us to fall at your feet every day, Lord. Help us to gaze into your eyes, Lord, and to, and to say, Lord, even though we're sinners, you love us and, and you have given us life. And let us be thankful and grateful for everything that you've done for us, Lord. And Lord, as we approach Easter, Lord, we ask that you would give us 
you know, fresh, fresh eyes to see the cross for what it is, that we would be struck again by the fact that you would send your son to come and die for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.